Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 70. Be pleased, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire to hurt me. Let those who say, aha, aha, turn back because of their shame. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Luke 11, verse 5. And he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I wonder what image you have when you hear about a lament being performed. Imagine, if you will, the end of the tattoo, Edinburgh Castle in darkness, and the lone piper up on the battlements, the lone mournful sound of the pipes echoing out, playing the, the pibra, the sound for the fallen. And it is very powerful, it is very moving. It's probably the classic understanding of lament the mournful, the sense of loss, the expression of isolation, the bringing into the community that sense of deep sorrow and distress and awareness of the brokenness of things. And it is an appropriate response to much that we hear around us and experience. This week a woman was killed just up the road from here. She was killed by young, a young man who is deeply damaged. This week in Aleppo, thousands have had to leave their homes because of the violence. Today, there are children living in frightening conditions in the camps in Calais because they can neither return to their families nor find a safe refuge. There are children in refugee camps across the world without enough to eat, drinking dirty water. Today, there are young men who cannot get to their place of work because a military system has closed the checkpoints. Today, in this building, there are people who carry such pain and distress in their hearts and memories that if we knew the truth, we would break down and weep with them. There are times when the lament that the piper offers is our only response, to weep, to mourn, to let go of words and explanations and to enter into the pain. 
when we started out to plan a series of sermons on Psalms, a series we're going to follow for the next five weeks, it was clear, firstly, that the Psalms of Lament was one of the types we would be working with. Lament Psalms are the largest grouping in the collection. And it was clear it would probably be me that preached on Lament, since we, are, we believe in playing to our strengths. And as Simon pointed out, anyone who listens to your preaching over the last few years, Ruth, knows you know about being miserable. So here we are. We are listening to one of those psalms that gives words to the pain and the distress. Listening to the psalms is not something we often do. We sing them, we pray them, we may recite them. We don't often listen to them. It's a bit like listening into somebody's conversation. It is exactly listening into somebody's conversation. As we listen to the psalms, we listen to people at worship. And to listen to the language that anybody uses in worship is to discover much about who they are and who is the God they know. And when we listen into the Psalms, we are listening, amongst other people, to how Jesus worshipped. So when we hear the stories he tells about how to worship, how to approach God, how to pray, this is shaped by his worship in the Psalms. So we're not surprised to hear echoes of the Psalms, echoes of the God addressed in the Psalms, in the words and the stories and the prayers of Jesus. And the way we use the Psalms will also give us some clues about how we think about God, really truly believe, not just the accepted and acceptable ways we think and speak, but what really is going on. There are a lot of moods reflected in the Psalms, as well as the classic grouping or, or the, by the numbers. The, the Psalms can be grouped into lament, into thanksgiving, into special occasions, into praise, and we will cover all of those over the next few weeks. But one of the most important writers in, on the Psalms in our generation, a man called Walter Brueggemann, argues that as well as that conventional classification, they can also be understood as what he calls Psalms of orientation, that is, Psalms that express our sense of security in the world, God sustaining all that is, and Psalms of disorientation, expressions, explorations of what happens when the world falls apart, and psalms of reorientation, psalms that try to find words for a faith in God who holds us when we thought everything was falling apart and we discovered a new way of being. And Brueggemann suggests that these reflect our experience of life. There are times when all is well, when we're secure, when things make sense, we can trust in the world to be there and not to hurt us. And then there are times when everything falls apart, when we're ill, when our partner leaves us, when bombs go off. There are times, we hope, when we discover again what it is to trust in the God of love and hope and life, but not in ways that are easy. If we take that classification and do a rough count of the psalms that regularly turn up in our hymn books and in our choices for singing, it appears that the most common ones we use are the orientation psalms. Words and prayers that are about feeling safe and at home in the world and at home in the faith which when you think about it, is a little odd. Unless Simon's right, and I have a particular gift for misery that isn't shared by everybody else, and unless everybody else finds themselves more at home in the world than I do, this is not a real reflection of where we find ourselves most of the time. There are times, and they're to be welcomed and celebrated when all is well, when life is good, when we're secure, when we're glad to be alive, and it's good to have words for them and to bring that into worship. 
good to be reminded on the days when that's not our experience, that our experience is not absolute. And to be challenged to let go of our own sometimes very small distresses and to enter into the wider celebration of the love of God and the life of the people of God. But, but, we might find that our intention and our tradition tries to limit us to safe and joyful expressions of faith, but listening to the worship of Scripture pushes us somewhere else. And the most notable, and it's noticeable, the most common form of psalm is of disorientation, of distress, and of lament. There is a classic form to the lament psalms. It goes complaint, demand, and reminding God who God is. And that's what we've read in, that, in a short form in the psalm that Duncan has read for us. He read it with passion, but actually in our English form, it is very polite. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. And then let various things happen. Not quite so polite in the original. Here's a contemporary rendering that catches the urgency of the original. God, hurry up to my rescue. God, come quickly to my side. Let those who, those who are out to get them, make them fall over themselves. Those who relish my downfall, send them down a blind alley. Give them a taste of their own medicine. Let those who hunt for you sing and celebrate. Let all who love your saving way say over and over, God is mighty. But I've lost it. I'm wasted. God, quickly, quickly, quickly to my side, quickly to my rescue. God, don't lose a minute. The whole energy of the lament psalms is that they are not polite. They are not measured and controlled. This isn't neat worship set to music and sung in harmony. This is a scream of agony and anger, of frustration and fear. Lament is raw, and it makes us uncomfortable. There's almost a conspiracy not to admit that things hurt or that we're in distress. I follow on, on Twitter a stream called... Um, very British problems. And it sort of summarizes what it is to be British in the world. And one of the things it had recently was, um, what's the worst you can say about the world? How are you feeling? Oh, not bad. <laughs> and, and it went through a whole list, actually, um, from uh, not, not bad is I've just lost my job, through to uh, could be better was my world has fallen apart, but I don't want you to know about it. Yeah? We minimize, we keep it neat, we keep it tidy, we don't want to impose on anybody else. We don't want to admit that things hurt. We don't want to say that we're in distress, but sometimes we are, and our world is. And denial of pain at an individual or at a communal level is deeply damaging because it doesn't make the pain go away. It just drives it into the wrong shape that's expressed in ways that distort and uncreate who we are. You know, I'm sure, what it feels like to be around somebody whose pain is unacknowledged, the anger and the bitterness that spills out in unexpected and destructive ways. You know what it's like when someone shouts at you and you don't know why and realize actually it's because they're upset at something else but they can't say that and you're the cat that gets kicked. And when we do that chronically, we can cause all sorts of distress and problems. That projection that makes others the cause of their wrongness and turns them into the enemy. And communities are very good at that. We need to lament. We need to find the words to say the pain and the disappointment and the anger and the sadness. And we need to do it really. 
And that's what the Psalms do. Nothing's tidied away or out of bounds. Nothing's unsayable or unacceptable. Nothing is kept hidden. Lament is not polite prayer. It's very real prayer. And is that how you pray? Is that how we pray when we're together? Is that how we pray for one another? I have no complaint at all about the prayers of thanksgiving and rejoicing that we offer. I have no complaint about the beautifully created prayers that are in our tradition and give us words and help us order our thoughts. But if we stay with that, if we keep within those safe boundaries and neat stories, we are missing out part of the truth of our lives and we're shutting, or we're trying to shut out God from our deepest selves. But lament, as we're led into it in the psalm, is not just the lone piper expressing the sadness and the misery. It is also demanding. It's no holds barred and shouting at God. Do you know the story when the priest saw Hannah in the temple? It's told in 1 Samuel. And Hannah is there because she desperately wants a child and doesn't have one. And she's there in the temple and she's weeping out her pain and prayer. And the words that are recorded are exactly in this form of a lament psalm. And the priest thinks she's drunk and tells her to go home. That's the shape of lament. The expression of grief and pain, of sorrow and anger. Make it stop, God. Make it different. Change it. Deal with it. And in Psalm 70, more than that, work with those who are trying to sort it out. There are those who are calling on you, says the psalmist. For heaven's sake, listen to them. Don't leave them to get on with it alone. This is demand and complaint and insistence that we are heard. When the church was in its first generation, there was some very interesting material written about prayer and specifically about praying together. The prayers in the temples of the other religions were very precise, very carefully monitored. Indeed, there was a monitor. Any, was any of you a milk monitor or the chalk monitor at school? There was a prayer monitor in some of the pagan temples who went around listening to the prayers and made sure all was as it should be, that the right phrases and the right gestures were used. And Tertullian, who was a significant Christian writer in the second century, wrote, we pray without a monitor. We pray from the heart. And he went on, when the believers pray together, they mass their forces to surround God. And this violence that they do to him pleases him. This is not gentle, polite prayer. Clement of Alexandria, who was writing just a generation after that, again wrote of Christians at prayer as an enemy without weapons, without war, without bloodshed, an army of God. God-fearing old men, God-beloved orphans, widows armed with gentleness, men adorned with love, the good force to force God and seize life from God. They told it as they experienced it. They learned from the Psalms, and particularly the Psalms of Lament, to say, this is wrong. This is damaging my life, our lives, and we want it to stop. And in its rawness and in its realness, the pain and the struggle and the grief of the world and the experience was all brought into their prayer. Nothing was tidied up. Nothing was made acceptable. Nothing couched in careful language that the monitor would approve of. Nothing out of bounds. This is end of tether prayer. One of the glories of our world and our generation is the amount of which we can control. In our context, we have medication that can heal or manage so many conditions that just a generation or two ago would have been 
life-limiting, at least life-ending probably. We can travel easily. We can communicate probably too easily. We have enough to eat and drink, even if we don't always share it properly. We could go on listing the ways in which we can control and manipulate our world. And then comes the moment when we can't. When death happens, when grief strikes us from nowhere, when we can't make it the way we want it, when it's unjust and we can't sort it, when the world is wrong and we can't make it right, and we turn to prayer, to this kind of lamenting prayer. We tend to warn against prayer as a last resort. Were you told this? Don't pray at the end, pray at the beginning. Don't pray when you can't do anything else. As if somehow it's insulting and objectionable. We've tried everything else, but now we better try prayer. Yes, it could be something to be warned against, but it could actually be a moment of honesty, of recognition that we are not omnipotent. We can't do it all for ourselves. It might be insulting, but it might be the birth of faith. To recognize I am not omnipotent is to understand my humanity, my place in the life of God. And that recognition is a conversion. It's a turning from being self-sufficient and autonomous, trying to make the world in my image towards a faith grounded in the recognition, I am not God, and it would be better all round, and it would be life and health and hope to trust God to be God. As the psalmist says, you are my help and my deliverer, not my own strength and not the powers that are trying to hurt me and not the violence that stalks the streets, nor even the hatred in my own heart, but you, the God of the poor and the needy. Laments a recognition and an expression of knowing we are not in control, but we get to shout at the one who is. Psalms of lament bring distress and loss and misery before God, and they bring it in demand and expectation expectation do this lord this isn't lord we would just like to ask you it isn't if this is your will it isn't a generalized bless the world it's specific and it's pointed and it's expectant and it draws on who god is you are the god of the poor and the needy so sort it out Prayers of the Psalms show us very clearly who God is. He's the God who's biased, the God who is partisan, who's on one side rather than all sides. He's the God of the poor and the needy, the one who is their help and their deliverer. And when Jesus was teaching people to pray in that story that we heard, he's using this model. When you're in need, you go and you ask for what you need and you expect to be answered. Jesus learned from these Psalms how to address God by insisting on who God is. And he told his followers to do this, to make these demands. It's not about the strength of our faith that's expressed. It's not about the proper nature of the prayer. It's about who God is and therefore what it's proper to ask for. That's how lament works. It's demanding. It's pressing God to be who God is. The God of and for the poor and the needy, the ones who cannot be safe by their own strength, the ones who cannot meet their own need, who cannot live in the world as a secure and a safe space. It's the person without bread, the person beset on every side by powers beyond their control, the person who can't make sense of things, is overwhelmed, who goes and says, you are the God of the poor and the needy, and I'm the poor and the needy, and you promise to be my God. And to pray this way is to acknowledge that we are powerless, and we come with empty hands, and to use that as our bargaining tool, 
I am poor and needy, and you are the God of the poor and the needy, so be it. Lament is not resignation or acceptance. It's not calm and peaceful. It's also not finished. Some psalms of lament do finish with an affirmation of faith. More of them finish with a conditional statement. Do this, and then I will praise you. This one doesn't even get that far. Lord, don't delay. It's open-ended. This is not settled yet. And there's no covering it up, no suggestion. We can now settle back down and pretend all is well. This continues as a shout and a demand and an urgent and insistent waiting. I am here until you sort this. We started thinking about the lone piper and the lament, the, the dignity with which grief and loss can be expressed. We were going to finish with a clip, but we're not going to, know. Okay, I'm now going to quote, for, quote you a clip from a film called Network. Some of you may have seen it. It came out in the late 70s, and it's, it's based around a news station. Actually, I think this is nearer the Psalms of Lament than the lone piper standing on the castle rampart. The newscaster in the film gets fed up with his role as the one telling the news as if everything would be all right, and he has a meltdown on camera. So you have to imagine I'm a very angry newscaster. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everyone knows things are bad, and it's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth, the banks are going bust, shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street, and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat, and we all sit watching our televisions until some local newscaster tells us that today we've had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we live in is getting smaller, and all we say is, Please at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my, my steel-belted radios and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you... I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being, goddammit, and my life has value. And so I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window and open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now, go to your window, open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change, but first you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. And then we'll figure out what to do about the depression and the inflation and the oil crisis. But first, first, get out of your chairs, open the window, stick your head out and yell and say it. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. That's the lament, as the Psalms give us it. The refusal to accept it as it is and the demand that it changes. And the difference between the network film and the laments, we are not shouting at or crying at or mourning in an empty universe. The Psalms tells us we are shouting at, crying at, mourning at the God whom we meet at the table. 
The God to whom we cry and say, this is who you say you are. Are you going to be so? The God who says, ask, seek, knock, we say, that's what you tell us to do, so do something about it. I'm not going to end by saying that we'll be heard, or that we'll all be okay, or everything is fine, really, because really it's not. As we come to the table, as we share in the psalm, we have the language and the companionship and the instruction of Jesus to say, if this is the kind of God you are, then do what you promise. And we're going nowhere, and we're not hiding, and we're telling it like it is until you do.